Hey, it's Tia Carrer, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. Evening all, or morning, wherever you are. This is Kino Kingdom 77. We'll decide upon a subtitle when Rupert says something like that that makes me laugh, frown, or yawn. Until until then, it's just Kino Kingdom 77. We've actually tried to do this a few times and been foiled. Foiled by children, but uh, but not today, not tonight. The power of toddlers. Um, and, yeah, it's, um, it's our regular listeners utah smith's birthday today actually so oh, happy birthday he, he sent happy birthday utah he sent in a movie rhyming stephen lang which i haven't i've decided i'm just not going to listen to them just so i get the full force when i play it live okay mm. which i'm really looking forward to um so all, all good with you rupert any news uh no no real news uh from my neck of the woods uh obviously um like prominent in my mind is the death of William Freakin. That seems to be the the most pressing movie related concern at the moment. Yeah, I it's he is um he has made some films, he has that man. He's made some good films. He has made some films and well, you wouldn't know it from some of the obituaries which seem to basically write off his career after the French connection and the Exorcist. But isn't that, course, the, isn't that the early 70s or 50s? Yes, it ago? is the early 70s indeed. Uh, but of course he actually just kept up and kept making occasionally brilliant films throughout his career and actually really struck me that he I mean he he was he was pure cinema really and he kept changing kept up with changing trends and stuff and he he still maintained a sense of uniqueness and authorship but I just thought it'd be useful to run through a few of his other films except The Exorcist and French Connection that are worth watching um for example Sorcerer which was made Oh, it must have been early 80s, maybe even 1980. Which 1977. Is, oh, really? Is it that early? Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. It was a, yeah, that was a cracking remake of The Wages of Fear. And it has Roy Scheider leading a bunch of dudes across Dominican Republic jungle, transporting a load of dynamite, really. And it's it's just really cool. Really nicely made, grimy, tense, and a excellent score by Tangerine Dream. So that was awesome. And then, of course, in the mid 80s, he made To Live and Die in LA, which is possibly my favorite cop thriller of the 80s starring William Peterson as a corrupt cop and it that film has like the cynical sensibility of a 70s thriller but combined with the gaudy neon style of the 80s and it's got an amazing car chase in it so that was cool also recommend The Guardian early 90s parenthood horror it has some decent tension I think I reviewed it not long, not too long ago, and it is a bit undermined by its supernatural element, but it's pretty enjoyable still. And then, of course, there was Killer Joe in 2011, <sighs> yeah, starring Matthew McConaughey as a cop with a side job as a contract killer, basically. And uh, it's genuinely shocking in places, and it showed that Freakin hadn't lost his ability to provoke, frankly. Very smart and funny. It was written by Tracy Letts, who also wrote August... Osage County and and actually if you look at Matthew McConaughey's filmography then 2011 really is the year that McConaughey started actually with like Lincoln Lawyer and Bernie as well is this uh what, what, what are the previous films before that 
previous films what with was it 2008-2009 with Matthew McConaughey in um well I don't know I think these were the well before I'm that, just sorry I thought you had the the information in front no of I don't have the it don't have it in front of me but that was the year that it, it the reconnaissance started it'd be interesting to know what the previous ones were before that because guessing they're gonna uh, be rom-coms of some description oh yeah so you've got let's start from where i stepped in you got you got failure yeah. to launch 2006 Oof, okay. uh Tro- tropic thunder 2008 so there was okay. a touch there surfer comma dude 2008 Oof. uh ghost that of sounds Girlfriend. like a stretch for him yeah yeah it, i think that i th- it, it looks like sorry i'm gonna cough it looks like he made like surfer dude and ghost of girlfriends past and said to his agent enough, enough. <laughs> and, and he had like 2010 off and then came back it did, generally looks like he had a break and said right i'm only choosing films that i you know i get some sort of value from now he was in like basically three pretty much classic southern gothic movies in quick succession actually because he was in killer joe mud and the Paperboy, all in like the space of like two years or something yeah so, i don't stuff. i don't know which one of those i prefer if i prefer mud or killer joe because mud of course Introduced me to um, uh, Ty Sheridan. Ty Sheridan, yeah. Our boy Ty. Our yeah. boy Ty. So, yeah, there's a lot, lot of gold there. But, yeah, I'm um, the, the, it's moving away from Matthew McConaughey. Uh, yeah, going back to um, Will and Freakin. Yeah, he, you, you mentioned you skipped, you skipped over a few of them because his film, like Cruising. Bug. Yes, bug, Cruising, yeah, yes, of course. Is, is a film I've, I've always wanted to watch and it's never – it's never been in the right the right moment for me, or I've never been able to sort of just find it when I'm in the mood for it. But I do really, really want to watch Cruising. I feel like, you know, people talk about seminal films like Citizen Kane or The Godfather. I have no interest in those, but Cruising for me is a film I feel like I should really have seen by now. It's it does it definitely intrigues me. I'm pretty sure that's going to be one of his more dated works, perhaps. But um. I'm guessing it's set in New York. I know it's set around like a, the, un, the CD underground gay scene, but if it's set in New York, then that's right up my street because then it would be sort of like nightmare New York period. Like, you know, S- steam coming out of the sewers. Oh, I just love it. You know, that, like, would, that would smell. Oh yeah. It's the CD the better, but probably quite homophobic as well. I'm guessing, but yeah, I'll make that decision when I watch it. With, um, with, with to live and dine LA as well. I watched that for the first time with you and that had, it had the same, uh, I'm going to talk about um, Blowout in a little bit. Not properly, it's not a proper view, but the, the Blowout and uh, To Live and Die in LA and Bavarian mm-hmm. Sound Studio mm-hmm. uh, all have this kind of fascination with machinery and the the, the minutiae of, of, of a project. Yeah, and, very technical. Yeah. Re- yeah, technically minded film, and I find that I'm really, really drawn to those. I think that's why I like computer chess so much as well. It's just people fiddling without motor machinery and like, sign me up. So... <laughs> But yeah, To Live and Die Lay is, 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 is such a good film. And if you don't know anything about it, you just watch it because it's still genuinely shocking. Yeah, and I, there was that was, after all the trashy obituaries I read, I, there was a nice one. Well, it wasn't really an obituary, but it was just William, uh, William Peterson talking about William Freakin and, and being so grateful because William Freakin had taken a chance on him, basically. And of course, that would have got him the Manhunter gig and that. So yeah, it was nice little. That was a that was a really lovely read. That was with just it was it was just it was just a big thank you, wasn't it? Just yeah. a huge thank you and celebrating his talent. Um, I didn't realize that he directed Jade. Really? Because that was the one with um, what's his name, David Caruso. 
Is that is that's got to be is that scripted by Joe Estazas whatever his uh, name? Estahas, yeah. Estahas, right? Okay. Is that is that the um the bloke who wrote um sh- what's it called Showgirls? Yeah, and I think did he write Basic Instinct as well? He was he was like he was. Is he basically in like an American Tinto Brass by the sounds of things? <laughs> I think so. Let's see what he let's see what he actually uh, let's see what he wrote filmography. Um. Yeah, Basic Instinct. I remember he got he was the like the highest paid screen. Yes, he wrote Showgirls, Sliver, of course. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm starting to see a, a definitely starting to see a, a pattern here. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, he probably walked up on set to to many people with the right, and he said, um, "So yeah, in this scene, uh, the difference is so when you walk in, your 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 breasts are in, but then by the time we pan back to you, they're the they're the opposite of that." And then she says, oh, they're, they're out. And he's like, yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. going to happen a lot in this film. Uh, you'll, you'll notice a recurring theme in my scripts as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, good joy, Esther has. She's just been tugging on it when he's writing his own screenplays. But um, I, I noticed that, the, yeah, you mentioned Bug as well. I really like The Hunted uh, 2003 as well with Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro. But you, I know for a fact you really like Bug. And I have that's another one I haven't seen. Yeah, I did like it. I I don't think it's a bit less ex- accessible than the other ones I mentioned, I would say. So it wouldn't be a starting point for Freakin's <laughs> career, but it was really intense. Uh, Michael Shannon, really odd, kind of almost David Lynchian, I suppose. Um, but yeah, but he's clearly a talent and he remained a talent to the end. I would yeah, say. I mean, he made films pretty sporadically towards the end. But, you know, yeah. I mean, in, in my lifetime, he wrote... Sorry, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven films in forty years. But, right. but I mean, I'm just looking at those, and the, there are only a few here that I either don't recognise or, you know, and that doesn't mean they're bad. Which nope. means I don't recognise them. I mean, you've got Nick Nolte and Shaquille O'Neal in one of them, so that's got to be good. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Billy. Billy Fry. <laughs> I mean, to, to lighten to lighten the mood, um, maybe you should. I believe one of our regular listeners is sending a, a joke. Yes. So this comes from a uh, regular listener, Max Laughter. Um, okay. <clears throat> Do fans of Star Wars skin art meet at a Tatooine convention? And that was a joke from Max in the memory of William Freakin. Uh, most, of it, I don't know about you, but I was, I didn't, I didn't laugh, not because I didn't find it funny, but just out of, just a moment Spence. of reflection for yeah. William Freakin. Yeah, that's why I didn't Absolutely. laugh. Why did, why did, why didn't you laugh? Uh, I, I put myself on mute actually. Oh, you were laughing. Yeah. So, so you're laughing so hard you didn't want to distract me or the listener. I'm with you, right? Okay. No, that's fine. So, thank you, um, Max. Laughter. I mean, I, I will say, I mean, it's, it is a a joke framed as a rhetorical question. So, I mean, I guess points for that, I suppose. Is that, do you well, it's not even really rhetorical, is it? Do Star Wars fans... Do Star Wars... Fans of Star Wars skin up meet at a tattooing convention? No. That's probably the answer. But obviously, if you'd answered that, it wouldn't have been as funny, so... 
I'm not sure if you, uh, you you're sort of understanding comedy in its broadest form, Rupert. But when when people come on stage, when stand-up comedians come out and they say things and they sort of put forward rhetorical questions, you're not supposed to like shout out the answer. That's <laughs> not how it works. Shout just, out the realistic answer. Yeah, you just you just keep sort of keep that to yourself, really. Um, <laughs> so Excellent. Thank you, thank you so much. And you um, sent me a lot more, so we you know we could just keep going all night if you want. Yeah, or I mean, we could move on. If you want to start a separate podcast and just like reel them all off on that and then come back to this one with me, then that would be great. I don't mind doing that. Um, and every but, joke has a full minute of silence after it. And a, and a really sort of stock response from the audience at the end of it. Um, I I also had an email from uh, Transvaal. And mm-hmm. I've got a feeling that he sent this in and then he sent another one that kind of made a further comment but i'll have to i'll have to go back to him because i've only got his original uh his original email here so i can no longer in good faith call rakuten the worst streaming service in the world careful now careful now wwe have recently updated their app and made it worse they have now taken out the inability the ability to skip to certain matches before under what you're watching it would have separate chapters now these are all gone so it's just one long video <laughs> with no indication when and where different matches or segments start i don't get the wwe logic so this is a problem i had remember when when it, yeah. was, it was so bad that i couldn't the, this is where i said you know that the whole search function is ruined and then when you it would constantly buffer and crash and then it would go take you back to the start of the video so now if i'm watching a four-hour pay-per-view wcw event halloween havoc from 1990 and i'm three hours in and it crashes i you can't just go to where that match was you say you know i just scroll through slowly an entire four-hour show so they've actually removed features <laughs> that's astonishing that is quite astonishing so how would you if you if you'd have to like scroll through and literally on like a search bar or something and I know how, how slowly that scrubs through as well, by the way. Cause yeah. And if you're on your phone it, and it's like two inches across, uh, it's like, oh, my God, uh, this is imprecise. If you think about how long chapters have been around since the earliest DVDs, when you have to, like, turn them over halfway through the movie. And before that, they books, still really? had chapters. <laughs> books about chapters for a while, yeah. Um, but no, WWE, a $9 billion franchise enterprise has just said, right, let's take out any sort of features that are of any benefit to our to our customers. OK, boss, no problem at all. Get on it. I'll start I'll start with the chapters. Yeah, but pay-per-views um, are always really cheap at them as well. So I don't know what you're complaining about. The, um, the yeah, I was going to make a joke, but then I forgot it as I was remembering it. Oh <laughs> forgot it as you remember it. Bloody hell. <laughs> oh, that's what I was going to say. So the chapter's been taken up, so I bet some people are pretty chapped about that. Probably best forgotten. Yeah. But uh, moving swiftly onto the next segment sort of our just non-stop action-packed show, there's... Um, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, from the last time we, we did this, we, we've talked about whether... Um, it was our email address. It was the men who t- <laughs> three years in? Is it the men who talk at outlook.com or the men who talk at gmail.com? It's the men who talk at outlook.com. So apologies if for the last three years you've been emailing us. I'm thinking I really, I really don't respond to any of my emails. It's it's because we may or may not been saying the wrong thing for almost half a decade. Yeah, it was not because we're inundated. <clears throat> 
No, I, I mean I'm a busy bloke, but even I can flick through a couple of emails every now and again. <laughs> um, so this is this is uh, yeah, Utah Smith. This is a happy birthday to him, and this is his uh, birthday movie rhyming Stephen Lang. And I haven't listened to this yet, um, so it doesn't say anything naughty in it. Like fuck. So here we go. I was in Christopher Lloyd's Elizabeth Bank Johnny Q when three Michael Dudikoffs in Chancellor ski masks, Amanda Holden, James Guns, burst through the Anthony doors. They were Jim Caring, old Kevin Smith and Adam Westons. The security still in Skarsgård, they hit over the Lena Headley, tied him with a Robin Thick Peter Stringfellow and told all the Mario Van Peebles to hit the Pauly Shore, Chevy Chase down. Instantly a bit of Pee Wee Herman soaked through my Martin shorts. They opened all the Johnny Cash drawers until they couldn't fit any Drew Barrymore into their Andrew Sachs. One went for the Joel Silver and the Jeff Goldblum in the John Travolta, but couldn't carry and must have known this, but he was too Roy Keane and set off the Kristen Bells. In a jumping jack flash, I kicked one in the Angelina balls with my Steve Doc Martins. He went Allison down on his Stanley Tucci. The second in the Volta was stuck in a Nick Cage. And the third Hillary Swanker tried to Hussein Bolt it out the side Richard Dawkins, but I out-Jamie Foxed him by making a Britney Spears out of James Woods using Natalie Sharp Sean Penknife. It went past Anthony Head and through a Max Payne of Craig Fairbrass, leaving Alex Sharp splinters all over the Melrose place. He Corey Felman on the Andrea deck just as the Francis Ford Coppola's burst in. What's <laughs> it? So that's such a talent. Oh my god! It's such a talent. It's it's when you start laughing at one bit and you realise there's just more. But I, I'm sure you had Craig Fairbrass in there as well. Thank you, string fellow. <laughs> Lest we forget. Oh my goodness, that is astonishing. That's a brilliant. Was, one. It, it, it's some. I think you're right. I think at some point it is just going to be a list of names, and we're going to have to <laughs> piece together the narrative. Yeah, he's going to that was titled the bank job by the way i think i, I think I, I pressed it weirdly at the start and i heard him the fact that he's titling them now the bank job so yeah the next one, you know the, hopefully the next one's called the tinto brass and it's just, just <laughs> two minutes of erotic explanations or as i call them a joe House script but no that is no, fantastic fair play so happy birthday utah i thank you for that and hopefully i'm just happy to to keep that coming every single time we do anything ever. Can I just can I just point out that Tinto Brass did describe women's bums as windows to the soul. That's all I'm going to say. What in an interview or just to himself? I think so. Yeah, I read it. It was an interview. I don't know. I don't know who it is. I don't care. But it it doesn't surprise me that he said that. If I was a stripper and I was in a strip club and Tinto Brass came in, sat down. And I said, oh, what do you want? And he said, show me the windows to your soul. And I, I wouldn't turn around and get my ass out. I wouldn't immediately <laughs> wouldn't think, oh, he wants to see, you want to see my ass? Oh, okay. <laughs> like some, it's some sort of Italian thing. No. I, I, to be honest, if I was a woman and someone said, I want to see the windows to your soul, you'd think the boobs would make more sense because they look a bit like eyes if you're far enough away. Yeah. I mean, if once you'd eliminate the possibility, limit literal windows, glasses maybe, but yeah. Linux. Wow. Um, so one uh, we've had it. We, it's been a it's been a pretty rich, uh, rich period tapestry. in terms of rich tapestry of love. Um, we've had another email uh, from one of our listeners called Ben. Who do you remember in the last episode we were talking about? Um, 
Are they, by the way, are they episodes, shows, podcast? Is it is it episode, podcast, I like episodes? episodes? I think that's yeah. it. Let's not let's not change things now. We got enough. We got into enough of a muddle with our own email address. I know. Yeah, it's true. Actually, yeah. When you don't know your own email address, just just stick to what you know. <laughs> stick to <laughs> nouns and verbs. Um, um, so we were talking about. Uh, well, the title of this email is Prequel and Sequel Trilogy Quadrilogy Nonsense. So I'm I w- now this is quite an, an expansive email. <clears throat> Thank you, Ben. Um, but I'll, I'll go through them. And I thought what I would do is I'd read out. Read out each section and then I thought we could just discuss it amongst ourselves, like what our views are on this on the particular film or franchise in question, if that works for you. Sure. So. So that it's George Lucas is a serial offender. Star Wars, the original trilogy, was a global phenomenon, effectively single-handedly kick-starting the movie merch industry, as well as a number of sexual fantasies about women in metal bikinis. Then then the prequels happened. Racist accusations, racist accusations over Jar Jar Binks aside, we suddenly turn the whole thing on its head and start the story with trade federation negotiations. I don't know about you, but I've lost track of the number of times I've heard kids say, let's play trade negotiations. I'll embargo a planet and you can ask me for tins of beans. On top of that, this prequel manages to undermine the two massive reveals that made the original trilogy so jaw-dropping to kids. So they not only made three rubbish films, but they spoiled three really good ones. (laughs) That is a good point. (laughs) Assuming you watch them in that order, of course, but... I think if you tried watching the prequel trilogy, you're not going to have any appetite to continue watching the following three anyway. So just uh, just do it chronologically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, does that does that is that still the best? I mean, I've never seen a Star Wars film, so I I, I know of Jar Jar Binks. But what were the racist accusations over him? Because I thought he was just a bit of a goofball. That uh, I think he was a bit of a like a <laughs> wise ass kind of african-american stereotype possibly uh-huh. okay uh, but i mean there was other stereotypes and I mean, there's like this like obviously jewish like scheming like salesman alien as well things but you know eh, i really they those things are not the key problems of those films but and, i don't and also- hate i don't ha- hate the prequels as much as some people do and also oh i've got a your I've voice a, is unbroken i know I'll, oh, I'll, I'll edit this out it's uh what was that then sorry Axel just came in hello buddy you okay oh, you knocked your car off you knocked your car off come on hang on it's not 3 a.m yet i know it's not 3 a.m yet buddy what are you doing come on, leave daddy it's not like it yeah um yeah so i'll uh yeah she's she just it's just hard and of course because phase off at the moment it's just she's the one like taking the brunt of it because i'm like going to bed and waking up for work and things but she's yeah. the one <laughs> taking the brunt of it that was the scene so what do we get up to so yeah, we Jar Jar got up to, yes so prequel trilogy yeah i don't yeah. hate it as much as some people possibly because i really didn't like the new trilogy uh i found that far more depressing dispiriting we will come to that later because i think one of the films i want to talk about today touches on this topic of fan service um okay i will say that the prequels while they are weird and misguided and everything that ben has said is true 
they are at least kind of like um they are stories that George Lucas wanted to write you know there wasn't it felt like they, he was authoring something at his own original vision so there is that even if it was not a particularly interesting vision trade federation negotiations yeah i remember that it's that first crawl from the phantom menace and the first thing you see is about is literally the first line is about um trade negotiations it's astonishing does sound pretty boring um yeah i i don't i think i've gone too far now i don't feel the need to watch a star wars film i probably will accidentally at some point but even technically you could just watch the very first one and that would be it because it doesn't really feel like it's part of anything else it just feels like quite a fun adventure with some cool you know retro future tech types production design so that's cool Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a.k.a. Indiana Jones and the Magic Fridge. There are only three Indiana Jones films, as we know, so this must have been made by fans on the internet or something. I can overlook the fact that in Raiders of the Lost Ark, we get told in passing that Indy was a pedo, something I think the world only noticed fairly recently, but even I can't look past a 66-year-old man surviving a nuclear blast whilst nestled safely next to some mayonnaise and celery in a fridge. I couldn't make it to the end of the film. That's how bad it was. I wish the crew hadn't either. The only redeeming <laughs> factor here is that they had the decency to cast Ray Winstone as a Brit, unlike the casting director of Black Widow, who should have been strung up by the town hall for casting him as a Russian. His accent in that film did more miles, when winding its way around continents, than Nigel Mansell did in his whole career. At least they aren't going to do anything ridiculous, like ask an octogenaire in Harrison Ford to reprise his role in another instalment, because that would be ridiculous. Just imagine it. <laughs> it's, I'm probably one of the few people in the world that actually preferred Kingdom of the Crystal Skull to, um, what was the second one? Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom. Yeah. Because yeah. I, fa- I, got, I, I haven't seen Crystal Skull. I mean, I don't actually like have any ill will against it or dial of destiny for that matter i just i just don't feel a particular need to watch them i did not i don't hate their existence or anything it's just like i was kind of done with the trilogy is that what dial of destiny is that what the new subtitle is yeah i think so it just sounds like someone pissing around with an old phone <laughs> that's such a like underwhelming name i thought you were just I think it's I called dial of destiny so now I, now you say it out loud it does sound a bit crap doesn't it yeah like a little Temple of Doom, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I mean, making a film about Dan Aykroyd's vodka is one thing, but then Dial of Destiny is just, mm. yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not, uh, I am I will watch the new one, probably because you won't, and one of us has got to cover it. Yeah. Um, so the next one is entitled Ridley Scott Damon Lindelhoff Alien Series. Prom- Prometheus. In 124 minutes, all I took away from this boring movie was that Numi Rapace plays the part of an archaeologist that sadly missed the lesson at university that covered how fucking wheels work. That, and as we all expect, as we all suspected, Michael Fassbender is an automaton. <laughs> how wheels work? I mean, I, I've seen Prometheus, but I didn't like it a long time ago. I'm with Ben on this. I That was the yeah. one where I just felt like everything was being explained to me. Yes. even All like, the time. Yeah. And like, yeah, and weirdly stupid characters. Ugh like these super intelligent scientists and they, they, yeah, they're doing the most basic, making the most basic mistakes. And they seem like no planning involved in any of this. They all end up on this ship and they're suddenly introduced to each other. Why not 
introduce them first? Why not acclimatize, you know, before going off into space to go on this vital mission? I none of it made sense. None of it made sense. It was yeah. What was this? It's such a good cast, and it was such it was such a terrible performance. Of course, Sean Harris is in it as well. Totally wasted. I was Sean. I was Sean. What was the sequel to Prometheus called? Because I know we both preferred that. Alien Covenant. Yeah, Alien Covenant. Felt like Alien Covenant was almost. It almost felt like a remake because it was so similar in terms of the storyline and stuff. But it was just much, much better. Um, but of course, it was pointed out by uh, our occasional co-host and constant lover, Lazel Buckets, that when we when we said, look, you know, Covenant is is a is a better film. He said, but then again, they haven't got past the stupidity because these are people who go to find a sort of another planet that humans can live on, go outside, no helmets on, <laughs> no helmets on, just assuming it'll be all right. Um, yeah. Instantly get infected. Um, yeah, because even if you know, even if they know that it's like got enough oxygen or whatever, you'd still you. You'd pop a mask on, wouldn't you? You'd put like a COVID mask on or something, just in case there could deadly spores like floating you'd, around. You'd at least hold your breath. You yeah. went out there. You went out there with the crew, and, and someone looks down and says, "But you haven't got any shoes on." I'm like, "Oh, it's grass, isn't it?" They think we have, but don't you think that you know something might burrow into your skin or anything? The grass. <laughs> the thing put is, shoes on. And the, the put some flip flops on at least. It's exactly what happens is spores get into the. It, they breathe in spores, and literally what happens as well. So yeah. Um. Alien yes. Resurrection. I thought <sighs> I wanted a vampy, slightly aggro Sigourney Weaver clad in black leather, and in some ways I still do, but not like this. By mm. this point, the franchise is more tired than Eddie is out on a 500th marathon of the week. Aliens, yes. Aliens, yes. Alien Special Edition, hell yes. Alien 3 might have been good if they used the script that William Gibson wrote, but they didn't, did they? The best thing about Alien Resurrection is the outtake of Sigourney scoring a three-point basket without looking. Look it up on YouTube. Grin, a big grin, and leave the rest of it alone. Can't disagree. Alien Resurrection is definitely the bottom of the barrel. Well, obviously, apart from Aliens vs. Predator 2. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah, those Those are... Um, <clears throat> Ghostbusters 2. Yes, the only... <laughs> Yes, the only reason we can make endless Vigo the Carpathian gags is down to this movie. And yes, I desperately wanted to see the original cast reprise their roles because I love the original so much. But it stinks of cash in, and the whole pink slime storyline is chronic. They had a hit, they tried to replicate it, and the result belongs in the bin. Stick to the first one. That is true. Even Peter McNichol cannot save this movie. <laughs> it's a sad it was, day. Yeah, it, it just seemed really tired, and not, you could tell that no, no one wanted to be there especially Bill Murray so yeah what, what was the um, what's the Vigo the Carpathian gags is that a, like a meme I've missed um well I don't, I don't know about the memes but I mean he's the main ghost in it isn't he it's oh, a pretty cool ghost I suppose yeah, is he the one that's painting yeah yeah oh yeah um, I get them both mixed up in my head because I mean I like Ghostbusters, but I'm saying that I I like Ghostbusters, but have I ever seen the second one through? It's one of those ones that maybe I've just seen clips of it to the point that I yeah. think I've seen it. That's all you need to see. Ghostbusters 2016, absolute nonsense reboot that needed to be made about as much as someone needed to invent fidget spinners. Unlike the internet basement dwellers that came up from their holes, blinking into the sunlight to vehemently protest an all-female cast, I actually wanted this to work. I really did. But it didn't. 
And it wasn't because it was women portraying the roles. It was because it was badly written. The plot was tedious and it was a waste of actresses who we know for a fact have impressive comic acting ability. That seems I, fair. I just, I watched it and I, it just struck me as like an average film as opposed to. Yeah. I don't think I disliked it quite as much as uh, dear listener Ben, but uh, I will say absolutely that Paul Feig was the wrong man for the job. Like, I don't think there's, I think you could have taken those same actresses and given them a better script with, with fewer kind of like um, crass jokes. It was the style of humour which really didn't suit it at all. That was the problem with it. Because, you know, other than that, I mean, the plot was bleh, whatever. But I I don't know if he's going to continue talking about Ghostbusters films, but I will be talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife in a bit so we can discuss that. Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll see what you. I'll see what you say, and then I'll read up what Ben says. So we'll save I'll that s- one. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Let's say that. Yeah. Um. And so others. We've got two here. So Blues Brothers 2000. I am convinced that John Belushi died because he saw the script for this film coming in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> a car crash only rivaled by the end scenes of the original movie. At least that one was exciting. I've never seen Blues Brothers 2000. I don't think. I've never seen it. it like why would they think that that was a good idea well what was it 20 years later i guess because the original well, 2018 it must yeah, be early so. 80s the original yeah um 81 or something. yeah so yeah no thank you and, and and the final one isn't so much a statement of about a film it's more of a question superman for the quest for peace why <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, thank you, Ben, for uh, that was the anti-nuclear war one, wasn't it? What's the one where they go back to save Wales or something, or was that Star Trek Four? Yeah, Star Trek Four. That was quite a good one. That's the one where they go back in time to 1986. <laughs> go back. I love it when they go back in time to when the film it's is amazing. being made, so they can just and, save money. And of course, yeah, absolutely, because I think Part Three must have like not done good business to the yet. They literally wanted to save money. Actually, turned out to be a pretty good instalment and kind of goofy but also massively dated of course because they go back to 1986 of course and it's got because it's like a fish out of water type comedy they basically it's just everything that's culturally notable of that time so instantly it's just like a total time capsule and the central plot is about them trying to get onto this um well like a russian warship in the harbor or something like that um so that they can launch back into space i guess anyway but of course that whole thing about it being like the cold war and stuff it's like completely alien to us um well so yeah i'll keep ben's thoughts on ghostbusters afterlife uh, until you discuss it as well but do you want to we, we this is effectively part two of the worst movies ever isn't it um, before we get into our movie reviews oh, so yeah, let's whiz through these i've only got i've got three more to go because i just want to and i and i think they um they could teach us some lessons here so the next one i wanted to mention was a good day to die hard this was the fifth uh die hard film i think yeah it was 4.0 yeah and this is the one which is set in russia and it's completely misunderstands the john mcclain character who's now this argumentative racist witless mean-spirited scumbag basically it's got all these implausible cgi heavy action scenes so in essence it loses two of the essential ingredients for what a good die-hard movie is, which is a likable and relatable main character 
who has been completely shorn of his like cowboy charm and grounded action where humans are fallible and violence has consequences. That was what kind of made well the first one in particular so good. And I suppose yeah, the lesson here is like it, it's an example of how like a previously treasured character can be shoehorned into a script that could have been its own thing but didn't have the strength of the brand behind it. So, or, or to go further, the script was a piece of shit. So they tried to artificially en- enhance its credentials with an already beloved movie character. I'm guessing it happens mm. a lot, like repurposing scripts essentially. But even if it can't be proven, it doesn't really matter because the results are almost always terrible and always draw attention to themselves because you're inevitably going to be comparing it to the previous installments. Like take the film Lightyear, for example, the uh, as in Buzz Lightyear. Oh, right, yeah was in itself a perfectly good space adventure romp but it was utterly like burdened by the legacy of its title character like if if they'd made it a new character you wouldn't have to keep explaining how this film connects to toy story or make excuses for tim allen not being in it or worry about buzz acting out a character or tediously litter the script with callbacks to catchphrases spoken by a different actor and yeah and it is just it's just it's like a millstone around these films' necks. I mean, like it wasn't a bad movie. Good Day to Die Hard is a bad movie. Yeah. Actually, it's quite ironic. I'm talking about this anyway, because Die Hard with a Vengeance, of course, was not intended as a Die Hard movie. Yet, and I guess this proves the point, a script, the script was good enough and well adapted enough to carry the idea, and the character was basically unchanged, right? Yeah, yeah. So it can be done. And you wouldn't notice because you wouldn't have no idea that Die Out of the Vengeance wasn't a Die Out film. It is so bizarre, though, just because I've seen this film. I watched this film very recently. In fact, I watched it and covered it like within the last 12 months on the podcast, I think. And I fancy Jay Courtney. And yes. it, it, this film is, like you say, it so misunderstands that it, like, and, and he, I mean, I, we know that Bruce Willis isn't a well man, but you wonder this is 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when it was being filmed. You'd think he would have something to say, like, this isn't John McClane. This is a character I've played for decades. This is not how he acts. These are not how he talks. He's not just this, like, racist dullard. And and also with it, one of the problems I remember having is he's just, he's clearly just killing civilians. He's, the things he does in this film would clearly kill hundreds of innocent passers-by. And his, his actions have no consequence. And even if they do have consequence, it's laughed off because they're foreigners. Um, yes. Yeah, it's just an yeah, unpleasant film. Uh, yes. With a, a, a newly unpleasant John McClane. And that's mm. and that is quite and that makes it particularly reprehensible because it's like that does. Like normally I can just kind of ignore sequels and remakes and stuff like that or whatever. But it almost like spoils his character if you see what I mean, because you watch that and you think, oh, right. So after the, you know, after the successes of the first few films, then he becomes an unconscionably unpleasant arsehole. Um, mm. The Last Days of American Crime, which is uh, it's only a couple of years old, I think. It's a reprehensible crime thriller directed by Oliver Megaton, um, who previously made some Taken and Transporter sequels. And it's, this was famously controversial because of its violent depictions during the George Floyd protests, protests, so it would have been 2020, I guess, including scenes of like police brutality and someone getting choked out. 
Not the best. Not the best. But if it had been a good film, it might have gotten away with it. But actually, it's just a really nasty, cynical, badly made, agonizingly long, nonsensical pile of crap. And the kind of movie that pretends to be edgy, but is actually just cruel and supposedly grounded in some semblance of reality. Yet still where someone can be shot with a shotgun at close range and just walk away. I, I, I'm not sure what lessons to draw from this, but timing is not everything. You know, you can make make a good film can excuse a wealth of sins. But if you make a very bad film, which is also tasteless in terms of its content and its socio-historic context, and it will kill it forever. So never do that again, please. Last Days of American Crime, utterly <laughs> inexcusable. I think that was the first time you kind of had what I would describe as a kind of a rant on the show because you really, you really didn't like it. I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you noticed that. Socially dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) It was that bad. And then the last one I wanted to just go through quickly was The Wicker Man from 2006. And (sighs) so this is obviously The Wicker Man was originally, it was originally a, I want to think, early 70s film by rod hardy british film very british film remember that and that and wicker man 2006 obviously relocated to i want to say america possibly canada but america and it took this seductive yet cautionary tale about anxiety around the sexual revolution and turned it into just a misogynistic rampage it's almost the room like in its unintentional comedy like I think it's quite memed now, but there's this bit where Nicolas Cage is like, he's holding this burnt doll and he's just screaming at someone. How did he get burned? How did he get burned? It's like, what? Calm down. It's so weird. And of course, there's the bees sequence at the end. But anyway, I guess the lesson here is this is what happens when someone doesn't update an original text for their remake, but takes it and just runs with a completely unrelated agenda and in doing so completely misses the fundamentals of the original because the original was of course defined by the sobriety of Edward Woodward's character this cop who is completely straight-laced and he is totally lost against this backdrop of madness and debauchery but of course, Nicolas Cage is just as mental as the people around him. So it doesn't make any sense, even on that level. Also, you've got to consider the text you're trying to update because Wicker Man was such a product of its time and place. I mean, it's pure. It's the quintessential folk horror, British folk horror. Like, how how do you take that into a different context 40 years later? So I suppose the secondary lesson then is something like, uh, a remake won't hurt the original, but you need to find to find a valid reason to remake it in order to make it a success. Like, mm. think about something like Robocop. It wasn't a very good remake, I won't lie. And of course, the original is a classic, but at least it gave it a go of bringing it up to date with like drone technology and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you could see there was a reason there was thought behind it, even if it wasn't good. Oliver, Olivier, sorry, Megaton. Um, yes. He's, I'm looking at, I've never seen Exit the Red Siren, mm. but the other films, he's, he was second unit director on Transporter 3, and he's done Taken 2, Taken 3, and The Last Days of American Crime. Uh, that's not a real, that's not a, and now he's gone back to telly by the looks of things. 
but that is not nice. okay. That's not a shining, uh, shining no. list of movies, is it? It's not the best, is it? No. Um, um, yeah, so that's it. <laughs> the worst, the worst films ever made. Yeah, again, if you want to email us at themenwhotalkaboutlove.com, we'd be intrigued to see what other um, people's sort of personal lists are. Because, I mean, like I said, I've said a few of mine last time, but I don't. I think my problem is because I don't log them anywhere. I just yeah. don't. I, uh, if they're that bad, I just don't remember them. Yeah, it's not something that. Um, so I just wanted to say before we went into the sort of full reviews, I, I, I don't know if I talked to you about this. I tried to watch Blowout for a full week because okay. I just chose it. I chose a really bad time. Right? So this is a 1981 um, Brian De Palma movie starring John Travolta, Nancy Allen, of course, and John Lithgow and his hair. John Lithgow's hair, which has never been full, full of bushy. <laughs> Um, it, I tried to watch this film on four separate nights and I put it on when I was absolutely knackered but I was enjoying it so much I didn't want to watch it half asleep yes. so I tried it for a full week and then the one day I sat down at like 7 o'clock and I thought right I'm finishing this off my my MGM trial had finished <laughs> <laughs> and I thought right out of principle I'm not paying like four quid to watch 15 minutes of a film but for what I've seen, it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm once again, I, I, I'm going to have to go back to it at some point and finish it off because I haven't uh, I haven't seen it yet. I just wonder what your thoughts of it were because I was really hips deep into this. And it's I thought a long this... time since I saw it, but I remember being very cool, very stylish, very classy, very dark, and probably a bit Freudian. I can't really remember. Probably less Freudian than Sisters, which is another one early Brian De Palma. But it's worth remembering, Brian De Palma made some really really quite amazing films like around that period it was definitely his golden period like sisters and scarface and raising cane things like that it was very very cool and he's made a lot of films he has made a lot of films and i mean of course he made the original mission impossible more on mission impossible later uh so <laughs> yeah so yeah i just wanted to, to give that a bit of a shout out because it, it seemed to be an absolutely fantastic film i it just was very very good and uh, and I think a lot of people might only have seen Nancy Allen in Robocop, for example. So it's nice to see her in a different role and kind of a sexy role, if you see what I mean. So. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was it, it seems great. One day I'll watch it. <laughs> but that day was was not over a week about a month ago. <laughs> you almost watched the film over a week. It's yeah. Impressive. Um, Unbelievable. Shall I? I might as well talk about Mission Impossible then. Please do, please do. Mission Impossible colon Dead Reckoning hyphen part one. Uh, so there is a, an AI on the loose. Uh, there is a key, a literal key, a MacGuffin, one might suggest, which needs to be obtained to get control of this AI. And Tom Cruise and the gang, um, including Bing Rains and... Uh, you know, Benji, what's his name? Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg. Um, yeah. They are on a rogue mission. They're being tracked by the authorities, a couple of hapless Keystone cops, basically. And they're trying to track down the bad guy. Uh, the, the, the bad guy is not Sean Harris. It's S.I. Morales, who's fine. Um, so that's it, really. And it, it's, yes, it is uh, part one of this two-parter and it's still apparently not the end they're going to continue making them after this so that's interesting um 
I think this is the weakest of the films since Mission Impossible 2. And actually, oh. given the extended runtime, it could be the weakest full stop, actually. Really? Possibly. Right. Because, well, for a start, it loses one of the essential elements that has made the Mission Impossible movie so successful, which is their briskness and actually their self-containedness, if you like. So it's a different story each time, basically, isn't it? And... It's so it's long, but it's also it feels even longer because you know it's only part one, so they don't have to like wrap it up at all. It's just endless exposition scenes, but of a particular variety, I'd say. In this, a character will explain at length the different possible outcomes of a mission. Like I swear, at one point, Ving Rhames must talk for about three minutes solid about the ramifications of Ethan Hunt messing up the last mission in a variety of different ways it's like just give us a situation skim the plan and inform us of the stakes that's all we need to know we do not need to know every possible scenario of what may happen um so all we need to know is he's gonna he wants to catch the bad guy and he's gonna do a cool stunt to achieve it basically there's a lot of very long action films scenes that don't feel new in this there's this whole car chase on tight european streets which we've seen before in well, Ronin and Bourne and even another Mission Impossible film, I swear. And there's an, like an austere techno nightclub scrap, which already felt like old hat in John Wick 4, to be honest. And or is it John Wick 3? No, 4. It is 4. Um, I'd say that the only set piece worthy of the series is the very final scene, which is this outrageous but train crash sequence but other than that it, it felt like we'd just seen it all before and also I'm not sure that the editing is up to scratch to be honest there's this there's this fight in a confined alleyway which it, it harks back to Bourne editing more than John Wick which is a bit disturbing and there's these weird editing conundrums throughout the film like there's this strange scene where Ethan Hunt is being chased through an airport and we see him like climb a ladder onto this roof and he runs along the roof and the music is reaching this huge crescendo and you're expecting something to happen and then and then it just suddenly cuts to the next scene it's like oh right so he just just ran away that was what that scene was about he just ran away um but but does he does he does he climb down a ladder and end up on a roof in uh, one of the films we watched with, I think it was Cybertracker with Don the Dragon Wilson? Yeah, it was no one, no one climbs down a ladder and ends up on a roof. <laughs> um, yeah. It, this film does not adhere to the Tom Cruise formula, which we've discussed before, because everyone knows he should start cocky and overconfident and get cut down to size. But in this movie, he basically starts like a klutz, and remains that way for three quarters of the film before lucking out in the end. So it doesn't. Why, why is he suddenly a klutz in this film? I don't know. It's really weird. He's just constantly getting outsmarted and just tripping over. And that's, it's weird. Tripping over. <laughs> Maybe not tripping over. But um, yeah, see, I don't know. Like, it just didn't feel like, like the same character. The oh, um, right, okay. And also, there's a particular plot point in it. It. I suppose it's sort of a spoiler, but I found the way that it trades in a super competent female character for a more traditional clueless female psychic to be a little bit regressive. It's like, it's a dynamic that the series didn't need. It's, it's like, 
you got this assassin and they just traded her for like a secretary type thing. I don't know. It just didn't sit right with me. And none of it sat well at all. And well, my wife put it perfectly. This is the only Mission Impossible film that I have no interest in watching again, which Mm. is not great because I'd quite happily watch all of them, including the John Woo one. If only to see him just beat up two great Scott on a beach. If uh, I've got to say that with this, it, it, this is obviously part one and they were filmed back to back. So it, it kind of mm. makes you think that the sequel isn't going to be any better, doesn't it? If they were possibly. Yeah, I don't know. I, or, or it could be a situation where it's like, OK, this has got the boring stuff out of the way or the kind of off cuts, if you like. And all the gold is going to happen in the in the last film. I, I kind of wish it were properly the last film because I think it could start getting a little bit embarrassing if he's going to be like mid sixties doing this stuff. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not quite Harrison Ford. It's. So. I'm just thinking because here he is. Yeah, he's sixty one now. So I suppose it is. He is. How old was Liam Neeson in the first Taken? Which was what do they call it? It was. Um, it was like a, a weird that term, wasn't it for um. Uh, it was at a Jerry action films. Yeah, yes. So, um, yeah, so how, well, he was probably in his must have been fifty-ish in the original just, one. Yeah, so Liam Neeson, the first one taken, uh, is what was this? Two thousand eight, and he's seventy-one now. Okay, so he's in his fifties. Yeah, so it's funny to think that was him coming out of retirement, you know, and he's, he's a, the first sort of the Jerry action films, the genre. But now, like in Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise is like a lot, like half a decade older than that. And still, yeah. it's not, it's his age. I guess it, they wouldn't make a joke about his age. No, no not with him as producer, no. No one calls him an old fucker when he does one of his stumbles that you keep talking about. <laughs> You old fucker, you broke your ankle. Your old, <laughs> your old ankle. It's just you just got a leg full of dust, mate. Yeah. <laughs> you're like that bloke in Red Heat. Um, are you, are you, you look like that bloke from Red Heat, mate. Um, yeah. Which one so specifically? <laughs> the one with dust in his leg. Oh yeah, that um, makes sense. Um, it's just a very exciting thing to shout back and forth. It's a shame because I, I will watch it because I've Mission Impossible films I've never watched when they've come up, but like when they've rocked up on Prime or whatever, I, I'm drawn to them. And I'm like the big action films do do yeah. sort of I, I will watch this. Is, is there any what's the, what about the there's always like a light hearted camaraderie to this, the jokes in it? Is it is it mildly amusing? Um, like, not particularly. They don't. There isn't that much of that stuff in it in between it is they've got progressively more self-serious haven't they let's face it like they've become more grim mm. really as they've gone on i i kind of kind of feeling that like maybe ghost protocol hit the right notes it got the balance best perhaps i mean since then the christopher mcquarrie era has been quite brutal it has had some amazing action scenes but they kind of been a lot of what i saw in this movie was superseded by in john wick 4 which of course and with john wick 4 it's like um which did deliver stuff new stuff that i hadn't seen before and also it kind of rounded off the story and it's like oh that felt like a good place to end but here we are 
hovering betwixt two films which are not even the final ones and actually it's a little bit underwhelming and it hasn't done particularly well at the box office either so considering it's one of the most expensive films ever made which i'm not seeing on the screen i was thinking that because as you were chatting about it i looked and it was it's the 10th highest grossing film of, of the year and it's under the little mermaid remake Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so yeah that's not that's not good no i think there will be a boost for the final part uh perhaps if they can say if they can say this is kind of rounding off this era yeah i don't know it would probably help if it were the very last one because can... otherwise they've got the kind of dc problem haven't they where they've got this they know they want to reset the kind of dc universe but they've got this kind of like whole like a bunch of films that need to be kind of just pushed out on audiences before then it's like, yeah, well, tied to it mm. so uh are we are we okay for me to uh to, to move on now from one massive action franchise to yeah. another sure sure um before i tell you the title of this well actually i'm gonna have to tell you the title so you can type it in um the alternate um it's a film starring it's one of it's a it's a Transvaal DVD special. I'm working my way through my DVDs. Okay. Michael Madsen, Eric Robertson, Ice T. But if and if everyone listening to this podcast now does this on their phone, if you go to IMDb and go to the alternate, the film from 2000, not the one from 2021, not that one. Um, if you tell me what you're looking at, Rupert, there should be a picture of someone in the middle who looks like Michelle Pfeiffer uh, in a trailer clip, and on the left there's like an American flag with three actors in front of it. Yeah, I'm looking at a different poster. Hang on, let's, uh, let's find You need to find the one with the American flag and the White House at the bottom because um, this is possibly the world's first racist DVD cover. Oh, yeah, I see it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah so you've got, you've got Michael Madsen, Eric Roberts, Nice T. But if you look at the people below the, the text of the of the names, you've got Michael Madsen, <laughs> Eric Roberts. The man on the right is not Ice T, is it? It's no. a random black henchman from the film that somehow someone has put on the cover and no one noticed it was not <laughs> icy. It's astonishing. So um, this is the film where it starts off. It's this is this was a roller coaster of emotions for me, Rupert, because it starts off right, and you think that there's some sort of senator or whatever giving some speech, and he's looked after by the Secret Service and. Uh, Eric Roberts looks like he's there to take him out. And he slowly um, makes his way past, either, either sort of knocking them out or, you know, sort of harmlessly getting past them. And he gets up to the president at the end and says, bang, but doesn't pull the trigger. And it turns out it's just a drill. And mm. Eric Roberts is just there to prove that, you know, there are holes in, in what they're trying to do in, in their in the methods. And he can, he's, he's a hitman they've kind of hired to show, you know, that the president could be assassinated at any time. Obviously, the head of the Secret Service is none other than Cold Harvest's Brian Jeunesse. That's right. Who actually wrote this film as well. Good. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, this is after the uh, because Cold Harvest was what, 97, 98. So this is he's, he's, you know, he's come back and he's like, right, let's get this going. Um, <clears throat> so what happens then is. Brian Jeunesse says to Eric Roberts, thank you for that. Um, thank you for your assistance and showing that we know we need to up our game you know there's actually a the president is given some sort of speech and we need you on the team um because you're the, the best there is will you work with us as a freelancer just to make sure nothing happens well you know he's he's under my watch 
And Eric Roberts says, no, I'm done with this. I came back to do this as a favour. I'm done. I'm going home. I'm done. I'm done. I'm bored. I'm retired. I'm done. I don't want to do it. I'm done. I'm bored. I'm going home. I'm done. And mm-hmm. and Brian Janess says, I'll oh, go on. And he says, oh, fair enough. I will then. Um, so... It's not the most, <laughs> it's not the most scintillating script, is it? <laughs> well, Brian Janess wrote it. So... <laughs> They, they, um, it starts off, and what happens is Eric Roberts is mooching around, make sure nothing, you know, no one, no one's going to shoot the president. And it turns out that Brian Ness is a little tinker, shoots a lot of the Secret Service agents, apart from a couple who are loyal to him, and they take the president hostage. And what happens then is that Eric Roberts, the man who at the start of the film, the first of all, you wonder why Brian Janess made him stay on the team when he didn't want to be on there, because he's clearly going to be the biggest threat when his plan comes to fruition isn't he? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he's going to be the, he obviously is the one that can outsmart Brian Janess. Anyway, what, luckily for Brian Janess, what happens is when all this kicks off, uh, Eric Roberts just suddenly turns into the clumsiest twat that you've ever encountered. Um, and he's just, just ends up wandering through this sort of palatial hotel, just getting into fights that he just consistently loses. And is, like, he, is he as clumsy as Tom Cruise in Dead Reckoning Part 1, though? There's no bit... Stepping on rakes. Himself. In the British, he trips over and someone shouts, Wagga! And it was he falls. <laughs> but he does this a bit where he goes into the main sort of the, this room where they've got all this, um, all the laptops and stuff set up that they're using to scramble whatever, the military stuff. And he gets into a fight with a woman and she just kicks the shit. She lamps the shit out of him. And the only way that he survives her, like a hand to hand combat with her, is because Brian comes in by accident and just shoots her, just shoots her dead. Um, and even though he doesn't need to shoot her because like Eric Roberts is losing the fight quite clearly um, so yeah and it goes on and then what happens then is all of the other henchmen get killed apart from and this is all set in a really like it's probably on location like in a hotel somewhere but you know when it's just people running from room to room and looking out of windows and then they'll cut some stock shots of police looking up at a building from the floor and nothing really happens it feels very static and when and then there gets to a point towards the end of the film where Eric Roberts has multiple drops on um, on Brian Janess and every time will announce that he's going to shoot him and then gets foiled. Like he'll just clear his throat or something or, or like trip over something or just say, Brian, and then he'll turn around and it loses the element of surprise. Um, Ice-T is in it briefly. Like In all fairness, that henchman who's on the cover that isn't Ice-T probably is in it a bit longer. Michael Madsen turns up and he, he kind of Steven Seagal's it where he's just looking up looking up at a building on the phone just saying who's there um (laughs) and so it goes on there's a classic sequence in a in a hotel room uh indoor swimming pool like an olympic sized swimming pool right and they have they get into this pitched gun battle where no one reloads for about 45 minutes it's fantastic and then brian janess is holding the president and he skip he scooches behind a pillar and if you imagine the width of an Olympic pool. It's got to be like, what, 15, 20 feet wide, if mm. not more. So he's hiding behind a pillar, like sort of mocking uh, Eric Roberts and Eric Roberts, uh, because they've been doing that thing where they pop out, shoot, pop out, shoot for ages, because it's a really boring fight. Yeah. And there's some bunting, uh, like flag, but plastic bunting, like going across. So Eric Roberts pulls a bit down and... He, he pulls it down from the ceiling tiles, those foam mm. ceiling tiles, and he tugs it, and then he jumps up. Right? Mm. And if you think you jump up, would you? And you would fall, you would fall straight <laughs> in the water because <laughs> if you, I'm trying to, if I can describe this, if 
if you, if you're holding onto some bunting, plastic yeah. bunting, right? Not meant to hold like a two hundred pound man, and he's pulled it down, so the way it's fixed is fixed to the ceiling, is on the other side of the pool, up in the corner. <laughs> so this, you'd have to you'd have to be a good 10, 15 feet up it for it to even if it was going to hold your weight to to swing. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you know what I mean, that, that you'd angle, have to because otherwise you just it's at a 45 degree angle it's not up above it uh he takes a running leap and just swings across the entire thing and i thought that is probably the most unconvincing stunt i've witnessed um although it is more exciting than watching um jd salinger's son run across a field i'll give him that um so yeah and uh at the end of it and to top it all off as i was watching this just sort of shaking my head at it at the end of the film he saves the day after a really boring gunfight, goes downstairs with a suitcase of money, and Michael Madsen says, "Who the hell are you?" And Eric Roberts sort of chortles and says, "You can call me the replacement." And I thought, "Well, why isn't the film called that then? <laughs> why is it called the alternate when that word isn't you, the, the the pun? The final line pun is wrong, isn't it? It doesn't." <laughs> So you've messed up the own oh, your title. You've got the wrong black person on the front of the film, and you've got the wrong title. Um, so yes, um, it says on the cover in the de- in the tradition of Die Hard. I assume they mean Die Hard Five in that it's not very good. The U.S. title of the film is Agent of Death. So again, that wouldn't still really not mix. the same. No, it's awful. And actually, looking on the other, there's two other um, DVD covers I can see in different regions, and they both actually have iced tea on them. So that's something. Interesting. Right, right people on the front. That's nice. Yeah, that's the level I'm working at. You with your Mission Impossibles. I haven't even got the right bloke, right blokes in the film, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's the alternate. What a wow. film. Yeah. Nine out of ten. Um, I'm gonna quickly have a. Have a have a glance and see if that's available anywhere outside of charity, charity shops, shops in Cardiff, in yeah. South Wales. Yes, yeah, so let's have a look. Um, the alternate. <laughs> I'll put the alternate brackets. Not that one. Literally not even on there. Literally not even on there. Not even on this thing. Don't know. No one's ever going to see this film unless they pick it up from a charity shop. That's what we've learned there. Yeah. Absolute classic. Um, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Then this is just landed on net. This is just dropped on Netflix. Don't say that. No, I won't. But I just did. Um, <laughs> I promise this, I won't. But I have. And yet, um, this was released in 2021. Five years after that controversial in inverted commas all female reboot in 2016. This one ostensibly goes back to the roots again. In inverted commas, um, sidestepping that to 2016 film and not really acknowledging Ghostbusters 2 either. Let's face it. So in this one, the daughter of the late Egon Spengler takes her family to stay in her father's huge rural farmhouse. She has a couple of kids as an older brother who's who's just into girls and cars and the younger sister who's like a neuro a typical science nerd and they inadvertently discover a secret project that their grandfather Egon was involved in which involves the apocalyptic the secret project he was involved in does it involve him locking himself in his study and watching his tinto brass box set 
it does actually weirdly that's part of it <laughs> i think he was just trying to bring him back from the dead i say that but i'm pretty sure tinta brass is still alive yeah. somehow um anyway so yes actually it involves the apocalyptic re-arrival of goza um who people will know from the first film in fact, I know a lot from the first film watching this. Um, so along with their new oddball buddies, they need to gather up the stuff from the first movie, basically the car and the plasma guns and the ghost traps and take out all the ghosts and then face Goza him slash herself. In the end, I found this film quite dispiriting. Okay. It's an overlong and predictable exercise in cynical fan service. It, other than the rural setting, it really doesn't bring anything new to the table at all. Like, actually, I spoke in praise last week about how, like, like fat mobs of fans can actually ensure a certain level of quality in films. But it can also go the other direction, which is just drag a film down into total mediocrity. And this film, Ghostbusters Afterlife, it relentlessly rehashes the beats of the original film just in a less vibrant setting with fewer jokes. It's the same ghosts, pretty much. Same plot moments. Um, you know, getting chased by a demon. Same demon dog. you got the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Um, you got the Key Master transformation, all that stuff. I think it's going for something which is almost like Amblin-esque, like a Stranger Things vibe, I guess. I mean, actually, one of the kids is... Um, Finn Wolfhard who's in Strange Things but the thing it can't copy from Stranger Things is what makes Stranger Things interesting to watch which is this the unpredictable like brutal intensity that makes that show addictive because it gives it an unpredictable edge it doesn't have that because it plays it way too safe it's not even as edgy as something like Super 8 or something which also went for the same Amblin type atmosphere. It's directed by Jason Reitman, who's the son of Ivan, of course, Ivan Reitman, who made the original, which I feel is one of many board meeting decisions that just seem to completely inform this whole movie. Like Jason Reitman, he's known for character led stuff like Juno and thank you for smoking and up in the air. So it's, he's got the wrong gig here. Like, this is a big scale CGI fest whose script runs almost entirely on callbacks, which I'm sure would have caused many an orgasmic eruption in the Comic-Con crowd. But, and also another reason why he's wrong for it is it's just non-existent as a horror film. Like there's no tension building or any creepy playfulness or anything. It just goes for scale over scares or atmosphere and in the end, of course, there is that inevitable array of lazy cameos uh, from, well, you can guess who. Um, and, and moreover, it, they're, they're an actual Deus Ex Machina moment as well. And they even bring back Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis, last time you get, died in 2015. Mm. Um, so it's a kind of weird creepy CGI version of Harold Ramis. He's on screen for quite a while, but he never talks. So I guess because I didn't want to try and duplicate his voice, it's just creepy on multiple levels. So yes, going back to what 2016 
like I said before, Paul Feig was totally wrong for that movie. But at least it felt like its own thing and it moved quickly and had a reasonably decent balance of scares and comedy. This is slow and predictable, not creepy or scary. It's a complete slave to fanboy worship. And it I would say it's an exercise in recognition rather than storytelling. And it was just rubbish. And I don't think is it is there any joy to be found in it um i mean it's quite well made it's quite nicely shot uh not really i mean like i haven't even mentioned the paul rudds in this film but he's sort of like he doesn't really bring it to life or anything he's just another there's this weird thing in this film where all the adults seem to be like oddly immature and irresponsible like the way the mother is around the kids she's just quite mean like the way she treats her her daughter's like probably autistic but also massively into science and clearly some sort of genius and every time her daughter mentions anything science related the mother will just say yeah whatever or, or something like that or just be totally dismissive of it and and this just goes on and on throughout the film and like but and she's just she just the mother is just much more interested in just getting with paul rudd uh, and she treats her kids like they're her mates or something like that. And I saw the same thing in the remake or the reboot of Child's Play as well. Had the same sort of Aubrey Plaza and it had the same kind of relationship between mother and son. And I thought, this is weird. Like, what is this? Is this meant to be appealing? Because it's really not. Really not. And also that part of it is absolutely not Amblin-esque at all. Because of course, if you're going back to those like '80s movies, it was there was always this kind of very much like the the adults were in a different world than the kids sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but this is odd. Yeah. And like Paul Rudd's character is like totally irresponsible as well. It's just more matey than anything. It's like I don't know where the <laughs> I don't know why there are no adults in this movie. It's so odd. Um. But yeah, it's just another reason why it was unappealing. Uh, luckily there's a sequel um on the way so don't worry about that see i didn't think it did well enough for a sequel but i guess it must have done set to be released on march 29th 2024 so that's less than a year away so it's got to be well into yeah i um i don't i don't know if i'll watch this i mean maybe at some point but i'm not gonna it's built for people for absolute raging fanboys of the original ghostbusters but i don't i think if i were that i'd I'd find it aggravating more than anything. I'd be thinking, well, this is just like a much longer, much weaker version of the film I loved. It's also, it's weird, isn't it? Because with Ghostbusters, right, you've got the you've got the original film, you've got a sequel that no one seems to like, yeah. you had an animated series that was quite well loved, um, and then you've got a, like a litany of bad video games, including yeah. one from 2009 that was like pretty good. Then you've mm. got another bad sequel and now another bad sequel so you think it's not really it's basically a lot of love based on one film from yep almost 50 years ago 40 years ago and and like a half and, and like a cartoon series that probably wouldn't stand up now if i re rewatched it no i'm not sure it would no so yeah it's just it's it's kind of misplaced love <laughs> yeah. it is odd yeah desperately clawing 
to get that same feeling again, but you're never going to get it. No. <clears throat> Um, I managed to watch a film. Oh, by the way, before we move on. Oh yeah, what um, did um, what did what was Ben's opinion of? It says Ben Ghostbusters Afterlife, fucking brilliant, best in the series. Did it though? That's, that, that's not what it says. Whilst the fan service was great, the film wasn't really. Yes, I got a bit teary when we saw the reanimated Harold Ramis, and if you didn't get someone to check you for a pulse, oh sorry, and if you didn't get someone to check you for a pulse, but he's dead. So is the franchise. And we all learned that there are some ghosts that don't need to have movies made about them. The Ghostbusters movies were supposed to be for kids, not about them. Shash. That's an interesting observation, yes. The fact that it's not a comedy is an interesting (laughs) choice as well. Because the other one was the... Yes. The film is aping. So you put it into a less interesting setting and remove the jokes. Excellent. Sounds good. I watched a film um, and it answered an age old question that I've had uh, that I've actually brought up in this podcast. And I'll, I'll mention that at the end. Remind me to to mention something at the end. This this little this little movie moment that I've been trying to remember for probably the best part of a decade. And I finally realized it's from this film. I watched Neil Marshall's Dog Soldiers again. Oh, yeah. Um, this I love werewolf films, and I, I don't know if you remember recently I watched one called Howl, um, not yeah. the Alan Ginsberg poetry, the one set in the train, um, which has also got Sean Pertwee in it. Clearly, is an odd to this film, and I said to Faye, I really like Howl, and I and the film that really got me into werewolf movies, the modern ones, was was Dog Soldier, so I want to watch it again. And if anything, it's even better revisiting it because <laughs> because you realise this was made in two thousand two, so it. You you kind of get a a feel for you know you watch a lot of films now and they're so rich with CG and it kind of takes all of the the blood out of it you know mm. but then you watch this and because it is it is all dudes in a suit and it's just all the corners they've cut to save money and the sort of flashes of the monsters as opposed to just really showing them on screen it it just works and it's the fact that they're a load of matey soldiers is a different dynamic to the yeah. usual sort of thing. It's not like someone panicking running through the woods. It's people, who, you know, well-skilled in these things. They're just completely, you know, out, outnumbered by them. Um, yeah, so this is this starts off, and it's um, it stars Sean Pertwee, uh, Liam Cunningham, Kevin McKidd as the main cast. of uh, uh, they, The first thing we see is Kevin McKidd running through for a special forces. Uh, we don't know this. He's just being chased through the woods, but it turns out that he's, eluding uh, sorry evading or eluding yeah the special forces for as long Mm -hmm. as possible and he does it for something like 10 hours which is like almost a record and they go to sign him up and liam cunningham who's you if you remember rupert in 25 years uh gives him a gun and just tells him just shoot a dog and he said i'm I'm not i'm not just gonna shoot a dog and then it's quite funny because liam cunningham sort of starts spitting in his face in this rant about like a pussy if you're not going to shoot a dog what good are you to me and he said i it's not that I won't shoot a dog. I just won't shoot one for no reason. And it's just a really good response. <laughs> and um, and then they just call him a pussy and like won't let him in. So then it cuts to, I guess, they're just in sort of back in the standard military group and they get dropped off in Brecken. And it's just a, a you know, uh, go from A to B and without without being captured by the enemy but it's a it's a drill so there's no there's no one out there really they find out when they get to this camp that there are there are special forces operatives there and they've been completely torn to shreds apart from Liam Cunningham 
and they find out that they're being attacked by werewolves and they the rest of the film is basically them just taking refuge in a farmhouse that uh, that a, a, a local sort of female farmer is uh, is aware of and has taken them there and it's just them desperately trying to hold off hold off these werewolves until dawn and it just it kind of feels like the perfect werewolf movie really because it's genuinely funny and you know you watch films and you you go over the trivia afterwards mm. and i don't even know if that's the case for this because i haven't looked at the trivia for it but and, and, it, and it says oh the cast all went to boot camp for eight weeks to sort of get friendly with each other that kind of thing to, as a bonding exercise yeah you you kind of get that feeling from this film because it's so the dialogue's so snappy and there's such an easy repartee between everyone yeah. and, and and yet and yet when when it's time to snap into action they 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 kind of do 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 what they're told but with a really humanistic touch like there's just bits where someone will do something really heroic or you know just get through something by the skin of the teeth and literally just like vomit from the adrenaline of it afterwards um and it's just it just these nice little touches it's always good to see people spewing um it 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 makes it really relatable and, and yes. because this the farmhouse is is shot in a way that you don't you obviously know there's like an upstairs and downstairs but you don't really understand the geography of it when people are being attacked it feels panicky it feels like your glass is being smashed and you know that they've just got nothing in there apart from like sideboards that they can put in the way from these eight foot <laughs> lichens that are trying to get in and um <laughs> there's some genuinely funny moments in it um it's just so funny there a funny scene where crashes into the kitchen he's like throwing pots and pans and anything he can at this raging beast it's yeah he's literally turning around and throwing like potatoes at it <laughs> the side and stuff and and somehow managed, i think he throws boiling water over it and it frightens it off and i thought i thought that was him done then but even knowing watching the film again and knowing when people do or don't die or whatever yeah. it's so kind of visceral in the attack they're so they're it's, so just yeah. outmatched i every- i remember being it's been so long since I watched it. I need to watch it again. But I remember yeah, it being really, really well balanced in terms of comedy and horror. It's yeah, which it's is a really, very difficult it's, thing to do because it's, it's genuinely really, nasty. Yeah, but also genuinely like funny and warm. There's just there's a bit where um there's just like there's so many funny bits. There's a, the famous scene where he punches Sean Pertwee in the face twice. Uh, and there's a bit where someone has got their intestines hanging out, and the dog is uh, the dog is like pulling it off, and he's yeah. like trying to get his intestines out of his mouth. And it, but but he's not angry at the dog. He's just he's kind of like bemoaning his situation. Like as he's pulling it, he's like, oh come on, like come on, I've already been disemboweled. Give me those back, please. And there's just this sort of world weariness about them all. Um, they've all got strong personalities, and yeah, the the comedy is genuinely funny. And because you kind of care about the characters, when things do happen, you you kind of you kind of will them to get out of this situation. But it's just clearly like just indefensible. Um, and and there's just a great moment where you know at the very start of the evening when they they get they, they clear this dining table and say what have we got? And they're like, okay, I've got six bullets on my gun. You got fourteen in yours. And you think it's not a good start, guys. This isn't a good start to the evening. I'm just going to come out and say. It. Um, <coughs> so <clears throat> yeah, it's probably it's probably one of my favorite werewolf films. I'm probably up there with one of my along with like nightbreed ravenous and uh let me ravenous and what's the, other, the thing as just not only just one of my favorite horror films but one you can just really re-watch over and over again yeah um and yeah there's just a, there's just a sort of a style to it and I, looking back now <clears throat> i remember being gutted for years that there was never a sequel constant talks about it 
But now, like 21 years later, I'm thinking, oh, it stands so perfectly as its own film yeah. in its own little universe that I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. This is just a great, it's one of the great werewolf films of modern times. I'm surprised they didn't and, and, wheel and the, out a few straight to DVD ones. To uh, I know it would be, that would be dispiriting, but, the, but, Saying that, one of the great werewolf films of modern times, and when I think about it, I don't even really think about the werewolves. It's more like the situation of it that appeals to me more than yeah, like, I, if, love, I love werewolves. But if you're thinking more about the situation, the characters, then that's probably the monsters good themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So that's um, absolute classic. And uh, yeah, dog soldiers. I don't know if you've got just watched there, Rupert. Where, where can the the viewers or the listeners let's, rather let's pop it up on the screen? Shall we find out? Okay, Dog Soldiers. Yes, that one. Uh, that is available on Freebie. That's where I watched it, yeah. That's that was fine. Uh, with the minimal adverts. And before, I, I know I've, I've got another film, but before I move on from this one and hand the reins back to you on this crazy out of control cart that we called Life, um, <laughs> a podcast about movies. The scene in this film, that when it happened, I sat up in bed and thought, I have been trying to place that scene in my mind for well over a decade. Mm. My, I don't know if you can if you can guess what it is, because I think I've actually brought it up in the early days of this podcast. My note says, dog soldiers in brackets, squeaky teeth knife. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, you were the same. Yeah, <laughs> where I yeah. thought it was someone forcing a knife into someone's mouth, but it's not. It's a, It's a werewolf that's been impaled and he's holding someone's head and he's like pulling it onto his own impaled torso and his teeth are like the only thing stopping the sword just from going through the back of his throat is he's just oh. biting the sword and it is squeaking as he's sliding down it um and it's a horrible scene but beautiful and uh, yeah so that's the squeaky squeaky teeth knife scene that i've been trying to place for oh. a decade so thank you dog soldiers you keep thank on you. um the deepest breath on netflix this is that's what we did earlier on isn't it after max's joke i think (laughs) think it's actually no that's the longest silence um Uh this is the latest overhyped documentary on netflix and this one is about uh a lady called alessia zucchini who's a multiple world record holder in free diving which basically involves holding your breath and diving straight downwards for like a hundred meters or more um and then coming back up to the surface essentially and and not blacking out as you do it and Mm. so it's about her but it's also concurrently about her trainer a man called stephen keenan and the first half of the documentary shows how they got to meet each other whilst explaining the mechanics and the dangers of free driving uh, free diving and the second half is about their relationship and how he helped her to take her craft to the next level. Uh, and in the end, there's this genuine tragedy. And it's uh, there's lots of genuine footage because this is obviously very recent stuff. So everything was filmed at all depths. So you got this incredible footage of the dives themselves and this amazing sound design where you can sort of hear the heartbeats and this muffled abyssal darkness beneath the surface and it is all very compelling as an audio visual experience yet and yet the editing is something because <laughs> that's something else you you know something is going to go wrong because but it, it, the way the film teases you 
and it turns the tragedy the ultimate tragedy into this sort of twist and i found it oddly distasteful and necessary i can't really give it away because ironically you know, i wouldn't want to spoil it but it shouldn't be a thing that can be spoiled if you see what i mean you mm. don't need these sorts of narrative devices in documentaries it like the film opens with footage of someone doing this dive it's like an unbroken shot of them doing this dive and then they ascend to the surface and they black out and that establishes like the danger and what's at stake and there's no denying the incredible feats of these people and there's no denying that the bond that the two main people share and it does have these resonant themes of heroism and sacrifice and belief and so that all makes it all the more disappointing that they chose to produce this artificial tension by teasing the audience the way they do i don't know what this thing is about these narrative devices in documentaries i i swear it's becoming more and more common maybe it's because like information and footage is so easily available nowadays meaning audience they think that audiences are expecting an experience akin to narrative film with the same like tension and revelation but in this case it does a massive disservice to at least one people, one person directly involved in this story. It kind of takes their voice away from them. And I just think instead of contriving this tragic love story for the ages, why not spend some more time in this documentary uh, understanding these, what actually drives these individuals to do what they do or understanding the subjective experience of like smothering your senses under a hundred meters of ocean or the experience of like gazing into this endless abyss like you get glimpses of this stuff like there's a moment when uh alessia mentions that sometimes when you're down there you start seeing things in the dark that aren't there and it's like well that's intriguing but like what why don't why not go into detail about that? like why not talk about that experience but no instead they want to do this contrived um sort of mystery twisty thriller thing and it is worth watching for the footage, but I just think I, I, if I'd known that it was going to be structured this way, I probably would have read the basic synopsis just to avoid that emotional manipulation factor that uh. just kind of spoils it in the end. Because it's a pity because it's so the footage is so amazing. Um, it's just worth it for that. But yeah, questionable in its structure. <clears throat> oh, fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. What? Because I'm the same as you. When I watch documentaries, I'm there for the. I'm not there to be like. I'm, I don't want to see like. Oh, what's, yeah. what's the twist here? No, you don't need that. You're telling. Just tell me. Give me the facts and give me some cool footage. You know, give me the story. And it, it's a different thing to a narrative film. It doesn't need to be this way. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, I have the same problem with them. Um, written reviews of anything video games that are structured like almost as if it as if it's a piece of fiction when really just like tell me things about the thing um and if it's good it'll be it'll do what it's supposed to it'll be amusing you don't have to just set it up a certain way like you're kind of making me peep around corners at certain points um my last one at some point you just want information conveyed to you (laughs) like it doesn't need to be more complicated than that yeah yeah uh, you tried to say that to Christopher Nolan, didn't you? But he didn't listen. No, he didn't listen. Um, or he couldn't hear me because of his poor sound design. <laughs> um, this I is found out why that is, oh. by the way. Oh, go on then. 
well, it's quite simple, actually. I suppose it's not really that much of a mystery, but he refuses to, he doesn't do post-dubbing, basically. He will always capture the actors' voices in within the, the take. So oh, okay. you get, that's why you get these situations. I notice it a bit in Oppenheimer, but to a lesser extent, the possibly because it, of the, just the nature of the film and just being in rooms and it's not, that's one of those things that sounds grand and sort of true to form. You know, I only use the original actors' voices in the take, but 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 you say yeah, but you don't you don't do it very well though, do you? Yeah. You don't because you can't hear them sometimes, so you're not. Yeah. yeah. And um, also, not I, is it completely true? Because I mean, Bane's voice in uh, Dark Knight Rises is completely different in the trailer, so I'm guessing that was posted up by. Oh, so he's so it's a lie as well, right? Right. <laughs> um, my my last my last movie is The Pink Panther Strikes Again. This is a TMT, just a two minute trashing. Um, I went out for a friend's birthday on the weekend, and we had a great night, and we 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 got a shared love of the Pink Panther films. Uh, I always watch a shot in the dark over and over again when I want to watch Pink Panther. But he said I really fancy watching The Pink Panther Strikes Again, so we put it on, and I just wanted to say like this is a this is probably the most front-loaded film with laughs I've ever encountered. It could have been tied into the fact that I watched it very late and I was quite drunk and tired, but mm-hmm. it was really, really funny for like 40 minutes. And then there's just this dearth of, like, there's jokes in it, visual gags, but it's just like, they're just not as, they're just much more, do you know there's a difference between something that's so silly that it's ludicrous and it tickles you as something that's just silly and just a bit tedious? Right. Um, yep. And I feel like the film just that the first half is is brilliant, and then it just the gags start to wear a bit thin by by the end of it. And of course, when you watch a comedy that isn't very funny, mm-hmm, you, you're mm-hmm. just you're just watching a boring film. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to say that really, I'm not going to in depth on it because I wasn't. I I found the first. I laughed for 45 minutes, and then I was kind of for about 40 minutes. I thought, yeah, the, it's like you've run out of steam now, really. Eesh. That's, that's it, yeah, it's, it's it's the thing is I was looking at this as you were as before we did the podcast and and it's lines like this that they're much you can describe some lines in this film that happen at the start some situations and you're laughing as you describe them and then when people watch them he's such a great comic actor yeah that they 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 are just as funny as the description of the image you have in your mind but the, one of the last paragraphs on Wikipedia of this says. Returning to Paris, Clouseau finds Olga waiting for him in his bed. However, their tryst is interrupted first by Clouseau's apparent inability to remove his clothes, and then by Cato's latest surprise attack. And the sort of apparent inability to remove his clothes, it's like a funny line, and it creates an image, but it's just, <laughs> because the film is so tired by that point, it's not, it doesn't live up to the premise, if you know what I mean. I don't know if it's just you can get worn out through a comedy. If it's so mm. quick fire, maybe that's something, but yeah. It's a film I'd watch again, but I'd probably... Now I know what to expect. I would maybe get my phone up for the last half <laughs> another part. Of it. Is is Peter Sellers amazing? Yeah, he's amazing. Um, and and Herbert Lom is is a real standout in this as well. And this I think is the last film with Herbert Lom in and Peter Sellers actually because the trailer of the Pink Panther, which was released in eighty two, was just made up with unused footage from this. So. I can imagine. In fact, I think the only funny part of that one is when he, as his father, falls down that entire vineyard. But then <laughs> that's just that's just me and my my love of pratfalls. Um, yeah. So 
Again, it could be because I was tired. I'm not going to go into depth about it because I can't remember too much apart from the bits that I know that always make me laugh. But it feels a bit front loaded. And it's almost like by the end of it, the set piece is so silly and ridiculous and over the top. But it kind of loses what actually makes it funny, which is the small reactions, the facial expressions and the trips. So when you when it's like in set and something ridiculous at the end, the sort of farce of it all overtakes the actual jokes of it. Pete Sellers was not in very many films, to be honest. Few as no. in ten, I think, in his entire career. And most of those are probably Pink Panther. He was in one. Is it called Being There? That was his last one. It's quite. Yeah, a, it's it's quite a cool film. It's it's worth watching. I think it has. Pretty sure it has a disco version of Thus Spake Zarathustra from 2001: A Space Odyssey in it. Most films do, mate. I don't know why you <laughs> It's not really a film if it doesn't. Of course, then. <laughs> and of course, he was in a couple of Kubrick films, Doctor Strange, Love and Lolita. But yeah, he wasn't in many. Other than that, it was mostly Pink Panther. But he was, well, I mean, he was incredible in Doctor Strange, Love. He played like, what, three different characters? Um, I'm not even sure, not sure that whether that was the intention all along, but he does play three different characters. And even in in Lolita, he plays he plays multiple characters, albeit he's the same character, like pretending to be other people. So it's like he was so good as a comic that he was just able to do that stuff. And well, suppose... and he's so good that even if you remember in Lolita, he's the bloke that fancies the bird and the birdie shagging at one point. <laughs> that's that's talent. That is, I don't know. I guess all that stuff that kind of like can. The chameleonic aspect reminds me of uh, like Jim Carrey a bit in that way that he's able to just completely transform, become different characters in front of your eyes. I think it's a very different gift, mm. which not all comic bit, actors have. A bit like Werner Herzog in some respects. Yes, many ways like that, yeah. <laughs> the, the specific ways don't jump to mind now, but you know. <laughs> but I'm sure there are, there are plenty. They are plenty. Have you got um? Have you got any any more movies for us? I will go. I'll do one more because I need to talk about a good film because I've just talked about ah. shit up, up to this point. Okay. So I will talk about Blue Velvet. Good. Um, which is David Lynch's film from 1986. So, well. Post a razorhead, post Dune, pre Twin Peaks. Uh, it's about uh, a teenager, Karl McLaughlin, entering an innocent relationship with a very angelic Laura Dern, and but he takes an interest in this older lady, Isabella Rossellini, but and he witnesses her abuse at the hands of a local gangster named Frank, played by Dennis Hopper, in a, a truly bonkers performance. And he becomes embroiled in this conspiracy of crime and corruption in this rural town of Lumberton, which could pretty much be Twin Peaks. And Frank, Den- uh, Dennis Hopper's character, he is the embodiment of evil, kind of like Bob from Twin Peaks, in fact. And just like in Twin Peaks, Carl McLaughlin is great at presenting as this wholesome uh, hero and then the darkness starts to seep in as he witnesses more and more. It's a common theme that David Lynch would return to this like corrupted purity and shattered innocence. And I think most effectively 
he, he went to those themes in Mulholland Drive. Um, and it's at the Blue Vault. It's got this. It's just so it's got these very, very adult themes of really twisted sexuality in it. And there's this repeated motif of like the horrors behind the facade at every level. Like, you know, you've got these beautiful, like uh, beautifully kept lawns and stuff. But then like under the layer of grass, the camera kind of swoops down and you just can hear like the chittering of insects and like they're all the worms and stuff. And it's this theme goes. This thing kind of goes throughout the whole film and it and it works at multiple scales. So like. There's the corruption he encounters with the police or within the parents of the town, and it's those it's discovering what's behind that facade of kind of innocence and authority that shatters his innocence and like nothing is simple anymore in the minds of these kids but ultimately it is a hopeful movie but it's just hell to get there and it is strange and intense but it is essentially grounded in the conscious world which isn't always the case for david lynch as we know especially with stuff like a razor head and inland empire but looking at his filmography he hasn't actually made that many films that are truly surreal to the point of bafflement. He's only made 10 movies and nothing in the last 17 years. And of his movies, like the really only three can be a truly dreamlike, I suppose, like Firewalk with me, a Razorhead and Inland Empire. And even Firewalk with me had the benefit of a TV series for context. So any of its surreal diversions are always circling back to what we already knew from Twin Peaks. He also has made three distinctly mainstream films in the form of The Elephant Man, Straight Story. And I'll say Dune, although it is kind of weird. It is essentially straightforward, like big budget adventure movie. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, I suppose what I'm saying is that it isn't an obvious trajectory for David Lynch that he started in one place and has ended up in another because actually a razor head is possibly his weirdest film. That was his first film. And mm. then you've got his last film was inland empire. And that was equally weird. Uh, and yeah, and yeah, in between you've got quite a variety of different kind of styles. So anyway, going back to blue velvet has this weirdly insistent, Heineken product placement that I can't quite put my finger on. And like, I don't know why it's there. And I, I went to read up about this because I thought, is there, like, do they need that to, like, get, you know, make enough funding to make the yeah. film or something? And, and then I got sucked into, like, a kind of fan theory rabbit hole and where a lot of Lynch fans are claiming that it's some sort of character choice that it says something about the characters in the film. And I just call bullshit on that. It's so obviously product placement. I don't know whether I like it definitely is product placement, whether David Lynch is like deliberately going over the top because there's like there's literally moments when someone will drink a Heineken and say, oh, my God, that's a fine, fine Heineken I'm drinking. Like they'll use the name of it. Like, I don't know whether he's like almost like taking the piss out of product placement itself like if he's going to have product placement i'm going to totally draw attention to it and make a joke of it 
that seems like the most likely explanation to me. The idea that they wanted it as a character quirk, bullshit. But anyway, other than that, great movie. It kind of falls into the in-between category, I suppose, for Lynch. Like it's it's got that uneasy atmosphere and scary everyday horror, but it's it's probably less fun than something like Wild at Heart, and it's less sophisticated, I'd say, than Mulholland Drive. Those two are personal favourites, but it still holds up, and perhaps worth it just for the cameo from Dean Stockwell <laughs> as this louche makeup-wearing drug dealer who uses a cigarette holder. That's an interesting little change of direction for old Dean. Um, it, yeah, dude, Blue Violet, good film. What's that? So uh, before we move into the Arkans, that is that is Blue Velvet your film of the week? Uh, I I see. Yeah, it dogs your for me. Yeah, that's yeah, the other yeah, dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two two classics. Um, the Arkans, that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we've got. It was Matthew Broderick to Michael Keaton. And there was a, a lot of people did extremely well at this, I have to say. Yeah, this um, one actually turned out to be extremely simple. Um, so let me just get all of the uh, entries together in front of my eyes. Can I say mine first? Because then it makes it sound like I've come up with it and they've all copied yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go yeah. on. Uh, Matthew Broderick is in Lady Hawk with Michelle Pfeiffer, who's in Batman Returns with Michael Keaton. Wow, yes, that's a path that others have travelled. <laughs> uh, birthday Boy Utah Smith said... Uh, Michael Keaton is in The Other Guys with Will Ferrell, who is in The Producers with Matthew Broderick. That's nice. Oh, that's a good one. Um, we've got, uh, I think this is Max. Yeah, Max. Uh, Matty Broderick is in Lady Oak with Pfeiffer, who's in Batman 2, The Revenge with Keaton. Boom. <laughs> uh, Laszlo says, yo, probably a popular one, but I can't ignore a two-stepper. Matthew Broderick was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off with Jeffrey, a bit of a Tinker Jones, who is in Beetle. <laughs> With Michael Keaton kiss. Oh, I like that, yeah. Nice. Especially um, Jeffrey Jones Link. And Ben says, here come the two-stepper. Matthew Broderick's in the producers, the 2005 one with Richard Kind, who's in Toy Story 3 with Michael Keaton. I do like the fact there's a lot of different ways mm. ways of getting there, which is quite cool. But yeah, it's, it's, it was a two-stepper, so um, that again, the audience won. So you've got a small, sad lemon balancing on the lip the lip of a curb whilst the audience all drive off with a brand new uh, Suzuki Alto each. So they, they've, they've won. So completely fair. What, what are we thinking about the next, the next Arkansas? Well, we're going to have to make it more challenging, aren't we? Clearly. Cause yeah. we're just breezing through these. Um, Should we get, just because we probably won't get to mention him just because he's in so few films. Can I throw Peter Sellers out there? Yep. Thank I think you. that's, yeah, okay. So who do we have? So Peter Sellers to <laughs> uh, Peter Sellers to Simon Pegg. Nice, yeah. Peter Sellers to Simon Pegg. There you go. I bet there's a bloody two stepper as well. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So yeah, that's 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 me done. Thank you to all of the we had a lot of emails and um, a lot yes. of emails and, and this, which is brilliant. So please keep those coming. The men who talk at outlook.com. Don't email bloody come. <laughs> don't review the Gmail. It's men who talk at outlook.com for God's sake. Um, Idiots. I need to get an update on uh, Transvaal's uh, WWE because I'm sure there was another message or some conversation talking about the. Uh, the issues they have but no, I, it's I, good I, it becomes this way it becomes broken down like this it becomes like a saga 
saga of the WWE. We'll get another. We'll get a good ten episodes out of this alone. <laughs> and yes, lots of love to William Friedkin, who made some cracking films beyond The French Connection and The Exorcist. Yes, far beyond. And um, thank you to Dog Soldiers for the squeaky teeth knife. Um, anything for you for the next uh, the next episode? Have you got any? Any themes, or are you just going to dive into whatever? I've still got a handful of cult classics I need to go through, because um, um, some of them <laughs> do not hold up after this time. I'll put it that oh, way. Okay, so, okay, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, looking forward to talking about them. Um, we'll try and, I don't know, smother our kids or something so we can actually have a reasonable gap between this and the next episode. Instead of murder, why don't we just move in together and fall in love? That is an option, I suppose, and they just leave the kids in a house on their own somewhere. Again, so not with the mothers or anything. <laughs> just, well, so we have three mortgages. We'd have we'd have the house, the house that we have with like our partners. Then we have a house that we're in loving together, and then a house we take the children to to leave them alone. <laughs> so yeah, my my disposable income would plummet if that was the case. <laughs> it's um, a complex setup. <laughs> My financial advisor would probably raise up an eyebrow with that one. Um, up and Atom solicitors, Alan Up and Bobby Atom, right? <laughs> Alan I, Up and Bobby Atom. <laughs> I love you. I'm going to go away and hate you. Excellent. Bye for now. Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. Hey, 